You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get going, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Audible. As a listener to this show, I'm guessing you enjoy listening to things, and you might like books. Audible has over 250,000 of those books read often by the authors themselves. We have people who've been on the show on there. There's ta Coates, Elizabeth Gilbert, all kinds of people. So I want you to start a 30-day free trial today by going to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Listener to this show, get 30 days free and a free audiobook. Pick one of those up, start it. I find it to be quite addictive, and soon you will be enjoying your car rides and jogs and so forth. Oh, so much more. Thank you, Audible. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Long Form. Hey, guys. Hey. This podcast is named. <laughs> um, you did this interview. Yes. I did indeed do this interview. I talked to uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, who uh, is an exceptional guest, an exceptional writer. She's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. And uh, sometimes you just get lucky, which is uh, hap- what happened in this case. I had wanted to interview for a while, I emailed her, and then it turned out that she had a story coming out the very morning that we were talking. Thanks, Max, for uh, alerting me to that fact at like 6 a.m. that morning. I'm here for you. And uh, the story is uh, sort of encapsulates a lot of what she writes about. She writes about ed- education. She writes about segregation in schools. Her daughter was caught up in something that's happening in New York City schools, which is sort of reflective of segregation in New York City schools. And I got to talk to her about it uh, basically the day it came out. So Look at Evan banging the table like a guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was just excited, and he should be because uh, that piece was exceptional, and this interview is also fantastic. Uh, uh, this, uh, this story has uh, caused uh, great ripples of controversy since it's come out. Lots of, lots of discussion. Ignited. Yeah. I think it brings to the service something that uh, a lot of people don't necessarily want to talk about but uh, is right there in their faces. So, What about sponsors, Aaron? We have a different kind of a sponsor today, uh, though it still is part of the MailChimp family. Uh, it, however, is a new project from MailChimp. It's called Freddie & Co. They find all the interesting creative people who are making things and selling things and telling people about them through MailChimp newsletters, and they put them together into this kind of cool not-for-profit store that sells one unique thing. When they sell out of it, they pick another. Where can we find that, Max? It's at freddieand.co, F-R-E-D-D-I-E-A-N-D dot C-O. Thank you, MailChimp. Here's Evan with Nicole Hannah-Jones. 
Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. You just have this story out in the New York Times Magazine that's about school segregation in New York. Give a little capsule about what this this particular Times Magazine story is about. So the story is about two schools in Brooklyn that were undergoing a rezoning, and one of the schools is in PS8, is uh, in Brooklyn Heights, which of course is a very wealthy, um, predominantly white part of Brooklyn. And the other school is uh, PS307, which borders a very white, was actually in the middle of a very white, wealthy area, but it serves uh, public housing projects, the Farragut Houses. And um, PSA was overcrowded, so the Department of Education decides to rezone a significant number of the students who would be going to PSA to 307, and a battle ensues. But really what the story is about, it's a story of why we have so much school segregation in one of the most progressive cities in the world. But then it's also very personal because uh, I have a six-year-old, and two years ago we enrolled her in pre-K at the segregated black school that becomes at the center of this battle. I've spent the last four years pretty much writing exclusively about school segregation and then find myself in the middle of this story and uh, initially wasn't going to write about it because Mm. it was too close. And because I write about school segregation, I didn't know if I wanted people to know. I mean, people can read what I write and figure out where I stand on the issue, but it's one thing to allow people to assume it. And it's another thing to write directly kind of what you feel about in your own experience. So I went back and forth, but in the end, I couldn't resist not telling the story. Um, I'd been wanting to do a school segregation in New York story for a long time because New Yorkers like to think that this is like a Southern problem. And it's not. So I don't know. It must have been the fates, but I landed in the middle (laughs) of the story. It was so funny when, when the battle started getting coverage initially in the news. I just started getting all of these tweets and emails and texts and people were like, oh my God, are you watching this story in Brooklyn? And I'm thinking like, yeah, I'm watching and like I'm in the middle of it. (laughs) (laughs) But I wasn't going to write about it at first. When they started putting the schools together, did you did you feel like, I know what's going on here. Like, I've written about this. I have, like, you have a tremendous base of knowledge about this that the other parents might not recognize. And you could sort of say, hey, look what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, um, so my husband is the PTA co-president at our school and has been going on this kind of journey with me because... I don't know. I I report on it, so I'm always talking about it at home. I have tons of books on uh, segregation at home. He's read all of my work, and so as we're going through this, he becomes you know really involved. He's understanding like what this battle is going to mean for our school, and you know for me it was harder because I'm I'm a journalist and I'm a parent, and um, at the school at the time I was just a parent, mm-hmm. and so I also was kind of involved in trying to make sure that our our school's voice was going to be represented. I was attending these rezoning meetings just as a parent, never intending to write about it. I wasn't even taking notes at the meeting outside of notes I would need as a parent. And then inevitably, I don't know how I couldn't have written about it at some point. It just was like bothering me to see, not that other coverage was bad, but I just knew I would write about it very differently. I come with a different depth of understanding. I also can take a lot of time and use a lot of space. And so... One day, which I may regret this decision, I went into my editor and I was like, I just, I feel like I need to write this story. And then I immediately was like, never mind, I don't want to write it. But it was too late. What's your hesitation? Is it related to the other parents and being in, in the middle of that? or I couldn't write the story without acknowledging my involvement in the story, clearly. So I think it was just this 
I, I am a journalist. And while I don't kind of subscribe to the notion, I, I don't believe that journalists are unbiased. And I don't believe that um, reporting is ever unbiased. Uh, I believe that our job is to be fair and to be accurate. So it's pretty clear, like, if anybody follows me on Twitter or reads what I write, where I stand on segregation, I think it's wrong. <laughs> uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. <laughs> but, you know, we, we do we do kind of like the old school model of journalism, or I'd say the mainstream model of journalism, is that no one ever knows what a journalist is thinking about what he or she covers. Mm-hmm. And while I, I don't necessarily believe in that, it is something different to write a personal story on the beat that you're covering. Um, a lot of times journalists will write personal essays, but not on the beat that they're covering. So I think I, I had a lot of like uh, internal conflict about that. Um, part of it is I also, I come out of newspapers. With magazines, the lines are much more blurry, and it's it's okay to have more of a voice and to put a little bit more of yourself in magazines. Where newspapers, is definitely much more solidly a wall between the two. What I don't want is because I've written my personal story that people would discount my reporting on the issue in the future. Mm -hmm. And that probably was my biggest concern. The piece kind of opens talking about my husband and my argument about whether to enroll our daughter in a segregated school or not. And understanding like what that means for him. There's some like exposure of like his personal feelings and then writing about my own daughter, who at the time I didn't realize was going to literally be the face of the piece, but who is... Oh, the, I haven't seen the... Yeah, she's on the cover. Oh. So she's literally the face of the piece, which I did not expect or want initially. Oh, wow. Even you discussing where to put your daughter in school in this conflicted environment is in and of itself an interesting piece. Like, you could have written that just as a personal essay. Right. And that's one thing I was going to going to ask you about about your work in general, including the work you did on school segregation, both the This American Life stuff and the ProPublica stuff it was based on. It seems to always follow that trajectory from sort of a very personal story, not always yours. Right. uh, Usually not mine. Usually, (laughs) typically not yours, to sort of history, to policy and back. When you started working for ProPublica, did you have a model for how you wanted to do that? Did you you say, this is is what I'm here to do, this is what I want to do? Or did you just sort of fall into writing stories like that? I was a history major in college. I, I double majored in history and African-American studies. And then uh, at the time, I wasn't sure if I was going to be a, keep going to school and be a historian or become a journalist mm. and ultimately decide on journalism. One, because you write for the masses, where historians often write for the few nerds like myself who love history or, or college students. The other historians. Right, <laughs> exactly. And, and journalists are also writing history. Right. As we go. So I ended up choosing journalism, but I've always loved history from a young age. I, I, I questioned the race divide and like why it seemed that black people lived in certain circumstances that were very different from uh, the white people that I would see in my town. And history helped me understand that uh-huh. because absent history, then it's easy to just believe the stereotypes. It's easy to believe all of these reasons that, you know, People don't want an education or people don't want to work hard or that somehow black Americans um, are responsible for uh, the inequality that they face. When you understand history, you understand how all of this was constructed. When I was writing about school segregation in Durham, North Carolina for uh, the News and Observer, the newspaper there, I always tried to put history in there because I just think... Um, one, we don't. Americans get very little history on that involves race in this country. I think that that then 
makes it impossible for us to truly empathize with why circumstances are, but also to try to fix it. Because if you don't understand that this this inequality has been constructed, then you don't believe that it can be unconstructed, if that's a word. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's true in the... Um in the piece that just came out. My Twitter handle says I write about race from 1619, which is the year that Africans were first brought to this country as slaves. Um, (laughs) I had this moment. uh, I was sitting in one of these PS307 meetings, and white parents were talking about how they had bought into these, you know, wealthy communities for the schools, and they deserved those schools because they intentionally bought into those communities. And with the inverse of that, which goes unsaid, is that... Anybody who worked hard could buy into these communities and therefore get good schools, too. And if if you were in bad schools, it was somehow your own fault because you hadn't tried hard enough to get into a good neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I realized, like, as we're sitting here with, like, black families from Farragut and wealthier white families um, who have been able to buy into good neighborhoods, that they're carrying this legacy with them and they don't even know it. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking that you're operating just based on your own choices and, you know, your own decisions, but... There's actually this, like, I call it like the matrix, right? Like this this code that is behind everything that has allowed you to get the wealth, to buy into these neighborhoods, and it has not allowed other communities to get the wealth. And we sit in this room and we're carrying a legacy that we don't even know is, is, is constraining our choices. Mm-hmm. And that is why I went back and kind of reconstructed school segregation in New York City, school segregation in the Farragut houses to kind of show that all of that is still present. You know, as Faulkner said, the past is is not dead. It's not even past, right? Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Trunk Club. What can Trunk Club do for you? They can take all the time you spend shopping and make it go away forever. You probably don't have time for it now that it's summer and it's beautiful outside, but you probably do need a nice pair of shorts, maybe a pair of swim trunks to power your offshore activities. It would be so nice to have someone pick up all of those things for you. With Trunk Club, you don't ever have to set foot in a store and you have your own stylist for free. So I want you to go to trunkclub.com slash longform. You put in your measurements, Say what you like, say what you don't like. They give you a personal stylist. They send you a trunk of clothes. You keep the ones you like, send back the ones you don't. It's oh so simple and there is no obligation, no subscription, no nothing. I can't think of any reason why you should not give this a try. Again, trunkclub.com slash longform. You will be supporting the show and your own enjoyable summer. When you were working at ProPublica, a lot of people will have heard this this American Life uh, piece, and I want to talk about it a little bit specifically, partly because so many won awards. It was like very lauded. It was amazing. I listened to it twice all the way through, and that story came out of the Michael Brown story, and that struck me as such a hard thing to go cover and find a unique angle on. So many people were writing about it. There was just so much swirling around. Reporters are swarming there, and so how did you first sort of find that? that angle. The great thing about ProPublica is you get to spend a really long time digging into something. The the thing as um, a newspaper reporter that was challenging about ProPublica is when breaking news is happening, you can't cover it because that's not what you do. Uh-huh. So when 
all, you know, when Michael Brown dies and all hell starts breaking loose down in Ferguson, I just want to go. Like, all of my journalist friends are down there and I'm watching the news and I want to be down there reporting it. And it just wasn't, that's not, it wasn't our role. And in the end, what would I have been able to add that, you know, there were so many reporters down there. What would I have been able to add? So I just kept thinking about what could I do? What story could I do down there? And uh, the the luxury I had was I could watch the coverage. I could see what was being written about and kind of sit back and, and try to figure out what what particular angle I could add. And I had just come off of uh, Segregation Now, which was... I'd spent a year reporting on resegregation in American schools based out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So my mind was on school segregation. And there was this thing that Michael Brown's mom said as her son lay behind her on the police tape. And she she talked about, do you know how hard it was to get my son to graduate? Do you know how many black men graduate? And that had always, that had stuck out to me from the very first time I heard it. But mm-hmm. I also had been just working in school segregation. So after sitting in, and I talked it over to my editors and they were like, you know, if you come back with an angle, we'll let you write about it, but you need to figure out a way uh, to get into it. And I just spent literally like five minutes on Google looking at Michael Brown's school district, um, wondering why his mom would be talking about that. Not that it's unusual. I mean, we know the statistics for black males and graduation are not good, but I'm also like, I'm a mom, and I just couldn't imagine that's what I would be think- talking about when my child is dead on the ground behind me Um, like how much of a struggle must an education have been and how important was an education to you that that's what you would talk about when your child was still you know on the ground behind you so once I I I googled around a little bit and saw his school district I was like I I think this is a story and then I did what I always do which I I tried I started looking at the history of the place and St. Louis just has this remarkable history in so many ways like Missouri was a slave state, uh, the Missouri Compromise, meant that Missouri would come in uh, as a slave state, but then the next state would have to be a free state. So it was this in-between place. It was like the first place to pass housing segregation laws by popular ballot to force segregation in the city. And it had this like, it was like home to this huge metro-wide desegregation plan that didn't even get started till like 30 years after Brown. It was just like, historically, I was like, this is an amazing place to talk about why we get a Ferguson. So that's what led me me down there. It's kind of my typical process is I, I, I see a contemporary problem and then I try to figure out what, what's the history behind this, like what, what led us there to see if I, can, if I can pull together a larger story that is never just about one place but also not just about now. Mm-hmm. It's always about this long history that, is, that has created the, the situations where we are now. And then... How do you set about finding the individual people who are going to be in that story? In this case, the mother and the daughter, who are just right. incredibly compelling people. How how did you find them? Did you have groups of other people that you looked at? Or? Yeah, I mean that's typically the, the process. Um, one, my pieces are are really long, and a lot of them <laughs> are in the past. I understand, and I'm also. I mean, I I went to the Oregonian. That's where I was right before I went to ProPublica largely because it was a narrative paper. It was known for uh, narrative writing and having great writing coaches, and I really wanted to develop my storytelling. I've been a good reporter. Um, I love reporting, but you want people to read what you write, and particularly the things that I write about, I need people to be able to empathize with 
people who they might have a hard time relating to otherwise. The way that I found the characters in the This American Life piece was, if you guys don't know the story, basically Michael Brown School District gets unaccredited and then uh, that triggers a state law that allows the students to leave their district for any accredited district nearby. And so they did, and about a quarter of the students leave the district, and then the state decides that's not tenable and tries to force the kids back into their segregated failing school district. And so the parents sue. The parents whose kids were allowed to go to accredited white schools sue the state to allow their children to go back to those schools. So I just contacted the lawyer who was representing those parents and asked him to connect me with some of the parents who sued and talk to several of them. Um, but if you hear the piece, it's clear why I ended up going with Maria and Nidra. One, they just have this amazing relationship, which any mom <laughs> would envy. And I pray <laughs> one day I will have that when my daughter turns into a teenager. Uh, she's already quite sassy, so we'll see. There's moments like right. that in the story that are just, they seem to be best friends. They do. You just And, you know, I'm, I'm sure they, they have their their fights or whatever, like any mom and daughter, but they just were like so in tune with each other and they had such a great relationship. But also, um, Maria and Nidra, you can just tell how much they had thought about these things, uh, how aware Nidra, or Maria, who's the daughter, was of the education she was being robbed of. I've interviewed lots and lots of kids over, over the course of writing about segregation, really for a decade. Sometimes kids are aware of it and sometimes they aren't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, if you haven't seen what a better education looks like and your parents have also gone through segregated, low-quality schools, you don't know what education can be. It's just this is this is what you think is typical. But um, Maria just had an intrinsic understanding that education was supposed to be better than what she was getting and she deserved more. And you just don't always get that. So when I met them, I just knew um, that they would be great for the piece. And I also knew, I mean, I pitched this piece to This American Life before I even went down to report it. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I don't know why I heard it as a radio piece. I'm not a radio reporter. I've never written a radio script. You've not done any radio before that? I did one piece with This American Life also with a different producer on housing, my housing segregation Oh, right. That work. was before, right. But she just interviewed me. And so I kind of tell the story, but it's just through interviews. It's not like me reporting it on radio or writing a script, but... I just, I don't know, I just felt like this would be a great This American Life story just because of the whole, like, saga of race and segregation in St. Louis. So I pitched it to them, but then the timing didn't work out, and so I wrote the piece, and then we went back down and reported it for the radio. I feel like there must have been a moment when you listened to that audio from that meeting, that school board meeting, because that is, that's, it's powerful to listen to because you're listening to people sort of talk in coded language but not think that they are right and it makes you like at least for me it instantly makes you think like do do i talk that way and other people hear it and i don't realize that i'm talking that way but how did you find that and how did you know instantly that that was going to be part of the the story yeah so the the local um npr affiliate down there had gone to those meetings and recorded them and yeah when you hear them i knew it was going to be part of the radio and I also knew that I would never be able to convey that in print uh-huh. and do it justice. That I could write what the parents were saying, but it's not just their words. It's the crowd. It, it almost sounds like a mob in there. But I also thought was what was so important about that meeting was the way it pulled back the veil. 
like these days we only believe something is racist if like someone explicitly says I hate black people or I'm doing this because I don't want black kids in my school. But when you hear that audio, it's clear what they're saying without ever saying it. And I think that 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 pulled back the veil for people in a way that we've been in denial about. What was interesting about it, so that piece came out in August of last year, and I was going to these um, meetings for 307 here in New York. And at that point, I had been found out. So at first, I was going to these meetings, and I never told anyone who I was, what I did for a living. I'm like, I'm just a parent. You don't need to know you know, it changes the it changes the dynamics when people know you're a New York Times reporter <laughs> who writes about segregation. Um, but by that point, I had been found out, and I would have people come up to me after these meetings and like, "Oh my God, I just heard your This American Life piece," and and I'm sitting there and I'm like, "Yeah, that's you, though." Like, it was just it, it was amazing how people could disassociate some of the things that they were saying in these meetings from what they were hearing down there, even though it was very similar. Wow. Well, that gets to a larger question. That makes me think about the question of sort of the impact of these kind of stories and whether if someone listens to that This American Life piece, someone argued it would just make some people feel good about the fact that they've listened to it and they say, I, I agree with that. That was wrong. What's happening over there right. is wrong. And then in their own lives, not. Do you feel like you have a goal in doing that type of story? And do you think that goal's accomplished? Mm. My goal is to make people uncomfortable with something that we have grown to be very comfortable with or maybe not grown, maybe something we've always been very comfortable with. When I first started reporting on school segregation pretty much full time, which would have been about 2013, I used to wake up in these cold sweats because I was spending like a year on one project about school segregation, which... We hear about school segregation all the time now. That is a new phenomenon. No one was really reporting on school segregation. We had just accepted that this was the way things were and there was nothing to be done or that we should do. You know, No Child Left Behind was based on making separate schools equal, and Mm -hmm. we pretty much just accepted that. But I was determined that even though I knew, I I was like, nothing's going to change because I write this. You know, we're not going to see this sea change. Probably won't even change in the district that I'm writing about that there are millions of kids who are being deprived of of what we have promised them, and I'm not just going to let us pretend these kids don't exist and that we're not responsible. So my goal has always just been to expose it and to not let us just comfortably enjoy this, you know, inequality that we can turn a blind eye to. I never have had any expectation that things will change in any big way. So in that sense, I have met my goal because I think we are seeing you know, more coverage of school segregation than I've seen in my lifetime. I saw on your Twitter feed the other day, someone was writing a, almost complaining that there was too much, too much coverage of school segregation yeah. now. It's, 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 it's a fascinating premise. Yeah. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. School segregation is literally the, the, the biggest problem facing our public schools, like hands down. When you look at the the tremendous uh, inequality in these schools and also what that means for who's going to pay our Social Security when we get older, who are going to fill these jobs when when you are undereducating what will soon be the majority of, of public school children. I don't know how there can be too much coverage of something that four years ago almost every reporter was ignoring. Mm-hmm. It, it's, an inter- it, it's an interesting <laughs> thought. And I keep asking, like, explain, like, explain to me what, 
you mean by that. But I, I look at like New York City and the amount of conversations and coverage and pressure now being applied to like actually not ignore segregation anymore has been amazing. It's uh, It's been more than I expected. I, I still am very cynical when it comes to race. So it's not like I think suddenly, you know, New Yorkers are going to integrate all of their schools. But I think the pressure to do something is, is growing and mm-hmm. that things can be better. Mm-hmm. They may not be right, but they can be better. Well, let's go back for one second to the This American Life piece, because there's a moment in there, there's an interview that I thought was amazing, which is with the school superintendent mm-hmm. of the of the school that's been decredited and is now trying to turn itself around. Right. And and there's a moment in that interview where I feel like a thousand reporters could have interviewed that that superintendent, and he sort of says what sound like typical things about how we're trying to turn it around. And then you just sort of stop, almost stop him cold and say, I've seen, I've, I've heard this, I've seen this. And that seemed like a moment where all of your reporting previously almost like built up to that moment yeah. to be able to say that. How did it go from your end? Because listening to it on the radio piece, it sounds like it's like people should study it. It's a really fascinating interview. Thank you. That's my favorite part of the piece. A lot of people talk about how illuminating they felt that town hall meeting was. But to me, the most telling part of the interview is when you ask the superintendent of the schools, are black kids getting an equal education? And he pauses and says he doesn't know. Like, that's the most telling thing. So to answer your question, my very first job out of college was covering the Durham public schools in North Carolina. Let's, uh, so did you go straight from undergraduate? No. Uh, no. I was a history African-American studies major, which meant I could write hell of a paper, but had no marketable skills. <laughs> uh, moved to Atlanta, and I was working as an admissions counselor at a college and made up my mind that I was going to pursue journalism, and I went to grad school oh. at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, oh, okay. which is why I was in that general area. So I get my first job, and I'm a schools reporter in an extremely segregated district in a very progressive town. So, I mean, I got into reporting because I wanted to write about race. So I was always attuned to race anyway, but I started in this very segregated school district. And this is like right after No Child Left Behind is passed. Yeah. And so you're watching these just entirely segregated schools where in some of those cases, like 99% of kids were in poverty, struggling to like meet these mandates of No Child Left Behind, which is saying essentially... If we just, like, force accountability on these segregated schools, we're not going to try to integrate kids. We're just going to, like, treat everyone the same and force accountability. And I'm watching, like, them try reform after reform, and nothing is working. And I should also say, going back and looking at those pieces, like, it looked like from day one you were three stories a week, two, three stories a week or more, and just, like, everything that was happening in those schools, you were writing about it from, like, a kid wins an award all the way up to school board to funding. like That's the nature of being a beat reporter, which is great. You make great sources. You're pounding the pavement. But I'm also looking at, like, you know, the larger issues. Like, okay, you've done five different turnarounds in this school, and the results are always the same. Mm-hmm. So years of this, then I'm in sitting in the room with this superintendent who is going down the line of reforms that he's going to make. And I'm like, I've seen every one of these reforms and I've seen them all across the country and we know the results. And just fed up with the bullshit, frankly, that we let educators get away with when we're not. And he's in, you know, he's in an untenable position, right? He's been asked to head up 
an entire school system that is impoverished and segregated and to turn it around. He has limited tools to do that. So I understand why he has to say what he has to say. But one of the things that I tell journalists all the time when they're writing about race is we don't ask the real questions. And I find that that the people I interview are so unused to being asked directly about race that they tell you really astounding things when you do. Hmm. So this didn't get into the radio piece, but it was in the print piece. I actually interviewed the head of the State Department of Education in Missouri, the one who had unaccredited this district. And I asked her the exact same question. And I asked her, could black kids in the state of Missouri get an equal education? She is in charge of education for the state. And her answer was no. She actually said no. He said, I don't know. She answered no. I'm actually still perplexed why the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education didn't open some kind of complaint against them because she's admitting Seems like a red flag. this, right? Now, she's admitting it in a way to say, we haven't done that and we need to. And she unaccredited this district because she believed it was time to, like, stop fucking around with, you know, these kids' education. So she wasn't coming from a bad place. But I'm like, we just don't ask the direct question. I think journalists are so uncomfortable with race that we're uncomfortable asking a direct question where if we were interviewing the CEO of Exxon about something, we would just get straight to the point. And when you do, you get amazing things. So for me, and I know what he's going to say, because every principal, every superintendent I've ever interviewed about segregated schools say the same thing, and they know that these things aren't going to work. So I just asked him directly. And you get this amazing moment because you asked the, the question directly. Like, I don't know that other reporters would say, can a black kid get a quality education? But I'm like, I'm looking at the data and the answer is clear. So I want to know what your answer is to that. Because mm-hmm. if you say yes, then I ask you why. Why aren't they then? Right. If you say yes, then I pull out all my long list of st- statistics that shows that they're actually not getting by like tangible measures, not getting a quality education. But he didn't say yes because he knew he couldn't defend it. So were you always a person who... Ask the direct question, is that a is that a personality thing, or did you learn that over the course of becoming a journalist? Uh, I'm pretty direct. <laughs> maybe, yeah, it's it's good for reporting, maybe not always good for relationships. <laughs> oh, people say but, communication is You know, is people important. say they want someone who speaks their mind, but, you know, not always. I've always been a very uh, suspicious person, very skeptical from a young age, and questioning, which often got me in trouble as a student and often got me in trouble with my parents. (laughs) Uh, I have always believed in, particularly when we're talking about race and being direct about it. Uh, I think I've honed it more because what journalism allows you to do is, is, is talk to people in a way that you normally wouldn't. And I think as I get, you know, the more confident you are in a subject, the easier it is to ask a direct question. When I'm going in Working on something that I don't know very much about, my questions are not as good because I'm not as confident in what I'm asking. When it comes to segregation, I know a lot. I know a <laughs> lot. Um, it's going to be hard for you to to snow me on anything um, because I just know a lot about the subject. You said you moved to the Oregonian because it had a more narrative bent to the right. newspaper reporting when you were at the News Observer. And did you always think, I want to write? longer or I want to do bigger projects? Or could you have been a happy daily newspaper reporter for, for a career, if, if that's still uh, a career that it's one can career. have? It's still a career. Uh, I think all reporters want to write longer. I always wanted to do bigger things. I Even as a beat reporter in my first job, I was figuring out ways to do longer, more investigative 
projects. I never got into journalism to just write about the grind. I got into journalism because I wanted to cover big topics of like societal import. But I also think what makes my work stand out is that beat reporting. Like a lot of younger journalists aren't getting that. Just skipping straight to trying right. to do bigger stuff. Right. Or going like right to digital where right. you never really have like a geographic beat where you have to learn all the players and you have to like sit in these council meetings and learn to read budgets and like that skill development I think is critical for the type of reporting that I do now. And I think a lot of younger journalists don't get that. Um, so I'm glad that I got that. But yeah, I always wanted to do bigger things. What I really wanted, I, I, I never aspired to the New York Times. I never even dreamed that big, honestly. I just wanted to like get a job at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and write about black folks in the South. Like That was my dream. They never hired me. <laughs> <laughs> really? So, you know, wasn't meant to be, but that that's that was like my ultimate goal. You could still go there I'm now. Good now. <laughs> I'm good now. <laughs> Thanks, AJC. Uh, I, I'm good. I mean, I, I, I literally would have never dreamed that I would be doing this type of work for a magazine and the New York Times magazine at that. So, Did you transition very easily into developing those big ideas and doing them over a longer period of time? Did you feel like that was a natural transition or that you had to kind of learn a different skill? Yeah, I think in some ways I transitioned really well. I've, I've always had big ideas and not always had the platform to write those big ideas. Uh, when I was at the Oregonian, which is, you know, a very regional paper, I would have these big ideas and they're like, this is not relevant to our audience or you need to like shrink it down so that it makes sense for just our Portland readers. Um, And that felt very constraining. I never wanted to write in that way. So the big ideas is not the problem. Mm -hmm. I think going from spending no more than two or three weeks on anything to being able to spend months and months and months is an amazing luxury, but it also is really hard once you have to like now synthesize you know, months of reporting down into shorter articles. So I think learning to, like, how do you organize that much source material? How do you then, like, pull that into a story? You have to leave so much out. I think that that I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure out the best way to organize sometimes dozens of interviews. I'm reading books, like, thousands of documents, like, to create a narrative and to get the structure down. I, I... I still struggle with that. I probably always will. I think it's very hard when you spend that much time on something. You're writing the whole history of, like, the betrayal of the Fair Housing Act. And, I mean, those things are structured. They seem to be structured very integrally to, like, weave the history back to individuals. And I mean, structure, I think, for a lot of writers is, like, the bane of our existence, like, figuring out the right uh, vehicle and, and how you tell that. I think I don't know a, a writer, particularly of long form, who doesn't really suffer when it comes to structure. And and that's really where the collaborative editor-reporter relationship is so critical, I think, is in that that structure. Um, The piece that's out now in the magazine, the structure looks very different from what I turned in. Mm -hmm. Well, Um, that's always true. yeah. Yeah. And it was just a matter of like, you know, the words are there and it's just it's not in the right place. And I think my editor at the Times, um, Elena Silverman, who's just like this old school magazine reporter, I'm like an old school newspaper reporter, um, who's wanted to do narrative and has done narrative. She just understands structure in a way that I see it afterwards, but I, I, I can't do it on my own. Huh. 
So you, you mentioned that when you wanted to get into journalism, that you wanted to write about race when you got into journalism. And there's this uh, Howard French story that came out in The yeah. Guardian. Uh, maybe you can characterize it better than me, but uh, which it's about, I mean, he's an incredible reporter, New York Times for a long time, worked overseas, and about how like reporters of color or black reporters in particular are sort of put on the quote unquote race beat or similar beats and sort of contained there by a a structure that's not very diverse. And I'm curious what your reaction to that story is in two ways. One is that it sounds like you chose to get into this in order to report on that. And the second way is then like Ta-Nehisi wrote a response to it in which he actually invoked your name. Yeah. um, I felt like conflicted about the piece. I I understand. First of all, I have a great deal of respect for... Uh, Howard French, he's a trailblazer and just a phenomenal journalist. I feel like journalists of color, particularly black journalists, should have the right to choose whether or not they want to be writing about these issues. I, through my career, have been discouraged often uh, from writing about race and particularly from sometimes well-meaning folks, sometimes not so well-meaning folks. The well-meaning folks had that same fear that Uh, writing about race would ghettoize me as a reporter and people would think that's all I could do and it would hurt my career. And the not-so-well-meaning folks just didn't think it was that important and and worthy of pursuit. I have never had a race beat except for probably the the time I was at ProPublica, we called me a civil rights reporter. Mm -hmm. My beats have always been other beats and I've written about race on those beats because I don't think there's any beat you can cover in America that race is not just intertwined environment politics business housing like you name it so whatever beat you put me on this is what I was going to cover because I think it's just intrinsic like if you're if you're not being blind to what's on your beat then it's part of the beat so I think that if 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 you are a black journalist and you are called to do this type of work you should be able to do this type of work and What this year has shown, which is something we seem to forget often in this country, is that this can be the highest level of reporting. You look what won the Pulitzers, uh, you look at what won the Polk Awards, the Peabody, and some of that, like the highest reporting was on issues of race and racism in this country. Um, And I think we forget that, that this is, it is not a ghettoized beat. It It is the foundation of our country. It is the foundation of almost all inequality in our country. So I, I, I'm of both minds. I think one of the things that I love about uh, what Ta-Nehisi says is like equality in this country is about black folks having the ability to be just as mediocre as anyone else. And, and I think that's what's important is like, Really, it's about reporters being able to cover what they want to cover and not being stigmatized by it, um, but also not feeling like you have to avoid covering what should be our job to cover, which are the most vulnerable communities in our society. Because you're black, you feel like you have to avoid that mm-hmm. because you don't want to be typecast. Mm-hmm. That's not freedom either. I think freedom is, I if I couldn't be writing about racism, I don't want to be a journalist. There's nothing... I've written about lots of other things. There's lots of other things that interest me. Um, but that is that is what calls me to this craft. But if it's not what calls you to the craft and you're black, you shouldn't have to. So, mm-hmm. you know, white people never have to choose these things, right? Like <laughs> right. no one ever says that. And I think that, that that speaks to kind of the fundamental issues of our of our industry and our nation. 
Yeah, nobody ever asks a white journalist that question. No. And the assumption is that, you know, white journalists who are writing about race are clearly not biased. But clearly they are, as we all are, right? Like race is shaping all of our experiences. Um, but people just think they can see the bias on the skin of black folks and they and they, and they they don't see it. I mean, one of the things that I talk about, I, I do a lot of talks about reporting on school segregation. And absolutely, like, white Americans' experience with schools frames how they cover schools. The same way my experience with schools frames how I cover schools. And, and everyone has see. an experience with schools. Everyone does, right? It's like one of those one of those American institutions that we all have had an experience with. And the, that sort of ties back to another thing I was going to ask you about, which is, you know, when you say, like, you can't write about schools and not write about race. Like, it doesn't... I mean, you can, you but can. you shouldn't. Yeah, it almost, <laughs> Right, you're not doing you're not your really job. About it. That's right. And that's, that's sort of the beginning of that This American Life piece is, like, it starts in this very interesting way because it's like, we know the answer to this problem. The answer to this problem is integration. Yes. And for all these reasons. And the thing that's complex is not the answer to the problem. It's the reason why the answer to the problem has not been implemented. That's right. And reading a bunch of your stuff, I see that strain in other places. And how do you go about explaining the complexity of those decisions not to implement those solutions? How do you go about sort of unpacking those for people? Yeah, it's hard because fundamentally it's it's because we have not dealt with our original sin, right? Like the answer is racism, not necessarily intentional or like ugly or like, you know, but but it, it is this like sense, it, it is just what is built into the fabric of our country so that it operates invisibly, it operates unchallenged, uh, it requires a great deal of disruption. And so how do you lay that out? Because wh- one of the questions I get all the time is like, well, why? Like, why why won't ki- people put their kids in this school or why? And I'm like, well, the why is, that is like the, f- the fundamental question, but it's also the foundational question. Why did we import black people as slaves here? Why did we implement Jim Crow. It's not a rational thing, right? It's a constructed thing. And again, I I guess that's why I lean so heavily on history is to show like there's building blocks to this. We got here to this place for a reason. And as much as we want to believe that we're post-racial, we're clearly not. And I think what's so key about the work that I've tried to do is show that the inequality is not accidental, that people are still making decisions that allow that inequality to happen and that create that inequality that is intentional. And why that's important is because if you can show that it is created and intentional, then that means it can be intentionally undone. Mm-hmm. If you act as if it's just a legacy or it's accidental or people just choose to live with their own, or you know, then, then we are not forced to try to do anything to change it. What uh, my housing segregation work did was show, like, this segregation was actually created. A great deal of federal money and effort went into creating segregation. And so when you call integration social engineering, you're denying that segregation was also socially engineered. Mm -hmm. Um, So showing that then, I think we cannot deny that we can and should be doing something about it. Do you feel like you mostly want to stay in the reported realm going forward? Yeah. I mean, this was also I, I said once I pitched this story, I wished I could like take it back um, because I, I don't think reporters should be spending a lot of time digging into our own lives. Um, I think our job is to tell the stories of other people. I think uh, other people are everyone's interesting. So I don't want to say far more interesting, but that's not 
that's not why I got into this was to just be able to write to write about myself. I got into this to tell the stories of people who don't have power, who don't have a voice. It just so happened. Like this just I just don't know how I couldn't have written about being in the middle of an integration battle myself, but no, it's not something that I want to do with any regularity at all. Well, I, it seems like you could have a a career as an essayist if you if you wanted to go in that direction, but I I myself favor the reported approach. I love reporting. I love the digging, the the getting to talk to people, the the trying to uncover things, just sitting and like talking about what I think about things. I'm just not I'm not interested in that. I've never been. I, I like you know how reporting helps me develop my ideas, and clearly when I'm writing, I'm writing my ideas, but. It's just based on reporting. I think there's so much, so much essay being written right now and, and so much blogging and, and, like, people just, like, writing what they think. And I, and I always wonder, like, when people stop reporting, what the hell do you write about, right? If you're not out there actually digging up original stories, what what do you write about? I just, I'm just, there's some essays I read that are, like, really great, but most essays, I'm, I'm actually not that interested in them. I, I like to see people who have been on the ground digging up real stories um, and doing original work. I think that's what's most important. I, I, I just don't think people need to just constantly hear what I think about things. I think my job is to to show people the worlds that other people are having to live in, particularly worlds that segregation make invisible to many Americans. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. That's it for this week's Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one of the co-hosts of Longform Podcast. Thanks to Nicole Hannah-Jones for coming in to talk about the story. And uh, if you haven't read it, you should go check it out. It's the New York Times Magazine. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. As always, to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, to our intern, Courtney Harrell. And thanks to our sponsors, Trunk Club, uh, Freddie & Co., and Audible. And we will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.